Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Rose Matafeo is a comedian, writer, and actor from New Zealand who began her comedy career at age 15. In 2018, her stand-up show Horndog won the top comedy prize at the Edinburgh Fringe, and she subsequently recorded it in posterity for HBO Max in 2020. Rose has become a fixture on TV panel shows in the UK, and you may have seen her as a contestant on the popular program Taskmaster or performing her stand-up on Conan. She also starred in a feature film, Baby Dunn. For her latest trick, she has co-created and co-written her own starring sitcom vehicle, Starstruck, in which she finds herself in a rom-com collision with a famous movie star. Starstruck almost got sidelined by the COVID pandemic, but his first season has aired on the BBC and HBO Max, with the second season and more already written. Manifeo spoke with me about quarantining in New Zealand for five months while wondering if her TV show would actually happen, the relatively young age of the New Zealand comedy scene, memories from Montreal's Just for Laughs, and why comedians think of other people as civilians. So let's get to it! Well, just from, just from following you on social media, I'm... I'm I'm getting hints that there might be fight scenes. There's some fight choreography. <laughs> that was being that revealed. Was, um, wow, no, that was that was on, on Instagram. That was actually from season one. And um, uh, but no, no fights, no actual fights in series two. I mean, you know, I, I, verbal. Uh, I mean, you know, fight, fight. I, I throw some punches. I think um, I'm best when I'm arguing. I think I'm, and that's the best acting I can do is when I'm angry. I've figured this this out. I, I it, it, you know, and that, I think that, I think that's a secret that a lot of actors don't tell you is that, you know, to just be good at being angry, it's actually not that hard. But then when we see it on stage or on like on on uh, in a film or a television, we're like, oh my god, that's so impressive. He's yelling. That's crazy. He just kicked over a chair. Whoa! But it's easy. It's the easiest thing to do. Well, it's tapping um, into something primal. Yeah, it's tapping into well, yeah. I mean, it's easy to do for someone who has possibly a lot of rage, that uh, suppressed rage, which is, you know, me. Um, uh, and it's it's quite enjoyable, quite cathartic. So, um, uh, yeah. Has Starstruck uh, been able to to give you that that release that stand up so far has not in the in the first being being angry? Yeah, <laughs> um, not particular. I mean. No, um, if, if you have seen my stand up, it is it's actually quite angry uh, a lot of the time. There's a lot of yelling. I, I get a lot of, I think I cop a lot of flack. Uh, people uh, feel like I belong to a generation of, of comedians who um who just yell a lot <laughs> and um and yell a lot or like speak fast. But I'm like that's kind of. I mean, I don't really know what else to do because I'm not a kind of person who I've got like so much anxiety when I'm on stage that I just like like to just you know get through it leave no gaps and basically scream um and uh <laughs> and so you know i can't hear any silence or leave any room for gaps of hearing people not laugh or anything like that so to be honest i've actually had to pair it back a bit um being in something that's filmed as opposed to in stand-up where um i can just yell and um 
cry and complain. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess this is a, a good enough time as any for me to reveal. And I might've said this to you before on social media, but I haven't said this to you in person, mm -hmm. except for the first time I met you yeah. was at Montreal, just the Just for Last Festival, which was... Look, was I got my Schwartz Daly t-shirt on. And that was from just, uh, Montreal. And that was just about a week or two before you took Horn Dog to Edinburgh. It was. It was a week. It was. It was only a couple of weeks. Yeah, that was mad. Actually, you're right. Um, it's kind of weird that I. Um, it was kind of strange to do Montreal just before uh, Edinburgh. But I mean, I had. I had at that point already had the show kind of bedded in a bit. I. I had. Um, I had done it in the Melbourne Comedy Festival and New Zealand. And sort of had done previews before I left, uh, did Montreal. And, and then as soon as I got back from Montreal, I was doing previews right up until Edinburgh. But yeah, man. Oh my God. I had such a good time in Montreal. I have, I, it was, it was the best time ever. Do you, do you enjoy going there? I do. I mean, they didn't have it last year and this year it's only going to be no. virtual still. But, yeah. but when I saw you, I guess this was three years ago now, I saw yeah. you on like a midnight show and I was immediately, I was immediately starstruck. <laughs> oh my say. god yeah oh and was I, that the one i think mike lee and black was on as well and like um was that yeah. at the yeah the club yeah it was like it was, the club. It was yeah. the upstairs of a the upstairs of a nightclub that was a cool gig that was an awesome gig and then i saw you that at the really i saw you at the hotel lounge later and i just started gushing <laughs> so. that was i mean it, oh god I, i've never been it was such a unique experience for me because i have never been to a festival where like they've actually brought me out to do stuff which a lot of people are in australia or in new zealand like they're actually flown out and like put up and and everything sorted for them and for me i've never done that because in australia and new zealand and in edinburgh i'm always self-producing i am uh no one's ever treating you like you know like a baby and like being like hey, there you go there and here you go do this gig and then you stay <laughs> in this hotel so it was honestly like the coolest experience for me. I accidentally became a part of Kevin Hart's entourage on that on, at Montreal. It was the funniest thing ever. I was literally, I was, um, I was at um, uh, uh, a lineup show. I forgot, I forgot what it was where he did a, he dropped in and did a, did a set. Um, genuinely um, blinded us in the audience from like how um, much his necklace like glinted in the, in the um, stage lights. He didn't do great because he just did tried to do observational material about how Jerry Seinfeld convinced him to uh, buy a pizza oven, and everyone oh, was wow. like, "Well, like, oh, we don't we don't really get that, Kevin." But um, then afterwards, I was I was outside, um, and I was, and then I met someone who was working with him, and then she had seen me on another lineup thing, and 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 liked it, and she was like, "Do you want to come to this next gig with us?" And I was like, "Ah, oh, not ah, oh, maybe." And I thought it would be a funny, a funny story in the end. So I ditched my friends, Nish, Nish Kumar, who was in the gig, and Ed Gamble. They were in the gig. And um, I left them, didn't text them, didn't have any credit to text them. I just disappeared into the night. Mm. Ended up sitting behind them. At, I think it was at Cleopatra's, the strip club that they do like stand-up yes. stuff. At. Yeah, that was Cleopatra's, yeah. Yeah, yeah and um, literally just in his entourage, met some of his guys in the entourage, like just sat next to one of his entourage mates, <laughs> watched him do another gig. Mm -hmm. I think it was in that he was filming his Netflix documentary. And so I think I feel like I was behind him uh, blurred out deep background. 
and a bunch of that. And then um, I just walked home to the uh, hotel afterwards. But yeah, um, uh, this is a long way of just bra- breaking about my one time as part of an entourage. But I wish I could go back to Montreal so much. I miss, I, yeah. Well, that, that kind of, you know, being in the satellite of a star such as Kevin Hart. Yeah. That kind of gets me back around to the question that I was curious to know. When yeah. was the first time someone was ever starstruck by you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I don't know really because I've done. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's kind of what your definition of starstruck is because I think there are with when you do stand up, you know, you're such so accessible to the crowd. I think particularly like after shows or during festivals and stuff, and that you you know you do a show and um, you're literally there with them in the room, and then afterwards, you know, you can meet people and. Um, sometimes you're, you know, asking for money in a bucket as they leave and stuff. Mm. So they're not very much, they're not really impressed to see you in, in real life. But I think um, after I started doing like TV stuff, maybe um, and here in the UK, that was a weird thing is that getting recognized in the UK for the first time in a country that I'm not from. Um, I think after like I did stuff like Taskmaster, that mm. really was like a thing where people were like, oh my God, because people just love that show. It's got an amazing audience. And um, I think actually that was like weirdly the first thing that um, people started like going, Oh my God, you're from that thing. So, um, well, at least, yeah. that was a, at least that was a thing where you were you. It yes. wasn't like they yeah. were associating you with, with some character. God, totally. And like, even to a certain extent when people recognize me from the show, it's like, they are pretty much recognizing me for the person that I am because um. Jesse's relative, quite similar to myself, but um, but yeah, it's a it's a funny thing because I'm not really um, uh, I'm very surprised by it and um, very sweet when people people <laughs> recognize you, um, for something you're proud of as well. It's kind of nice. It's kind of nice because, you know, it's for your own comedy or things that you've written yourself. So it's not like there's no kind of embarrassment of a, a, around it. Um, I can't speak to, you know, other actors who are in Starstruck who potentially are embarrassed to be in it um, and are recognized from it. But, you know, each to their own. It's fine. <laughs> well, if they are too embarrassed, then you don't have to include them in the second series. Exactly. They're cut. They're totally cut. And I've checked, you know, I've checked. Um, was the, I know you started so very young in, in New Zealand. Mm. You were, what, 15 when you started? I was 15 years old. Yes, I was um, pretty young, pretty young. Was, but there were about, it, there were a bunch of comedians who started quite young, actually. It's surprising when you, you certain. I was listening to the Seth Rogen uh, on on uh, Conan the other day, and and he started like so young as well. Right. I was like, wow, really young. young. Uh, Dave Chappelle started like 14 or 15. Really, yeah. Josie Long, a UK comedian, she started really young up here, and yeah, it's um. I mean, I was I was helped by the fact that I did like a school holiday program thing that by the comedy festival there in New Zealand that um got like kids sort of doing their first gig and um I just kept doing it. Well that's the difference is that or at least from my eyes is mm. you know there's a there's a much longer richer tradition of stand up comedy in the States and in mm. Canada and the UK. But mm. I but I wasn't really familiar with New Zealand comedy until the Flight of the Concords gang. Yeah. Yeah, about. totally. I mean New Zealand comedy really didn't um have a bit of a boom to the nineties, really. I mean, like in every, I think stand-up comedy had a big, huge boom in the nineties anyway, but, um, but no, definitely not in terms of like nothing like what the tradition of like, because there's no like, you know, things like it didn't come from like vaudeville, you know, or like, or, um, 
there's a different kind of progressed it didn't progress from other forms of entertainment it basically was like other forms of entertainment progressed to stand up and then in New Zealand we went oh oh we will do that now um because yeah but so it was it was very um it was it was the 80s and 90s where it kind of came about and like there's only one comedy like well no, but when I when I first started, there's only one comedy club in New Zealand, um, which is the classic in Auckland, and and um, so yeah, it's a relatively young, it's a young country, let alone you know a young comedy scene, but I think it's I think it's um it kind of means a cool. I think geographically it means that New Zealand comedy is really like unique and really specific to um uh, quite a like a safe corner of the world where you can we can experiment and be you know, influenced by others, but also like there's no competition because there's no opportunities. And when there's no massive opportunities that you're competing to, you know, get onto this show or get this certain gig, it fosters quite a, uh, a wonderful um, a bit, like, a environment where you can just be weird and be yourself. And I think definitely like things like Flight of the Concords and, you know, Reese and like Taika, like, have been examples of that i think which is really um cool how how important was that in in fueling your ability to start writing your own full full hour shows even as just a teenager um i think it was it was just so funny because i mean i i've got like honestly like i've written 10 i'd say 10 or even more hour-long shows in my life I mean, I've been doing comedy for like over a decade. Yeah, and you're 29. Them, I 29, yeah, you've yeah, already yeah. done like 10 one-hour shows. Well, yeah, but it's like, it's, 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 and, and what I'd do with it, write an hour show, do it for one week and then never do it again and put so much effort into, and, you know, that's not like what you do at Edinburgh. You do it for a month and then you tour it or you preview it or something. And I honestly was just, it was just like you were, I was just like a random kid who just went, okay, I'm like, oh shit, I have to write an hour oh god oh god it's next week oh god then perform it for a week and then get through it and then sort of start you know thinking about what i'll do the next year and there was no like there was no like idea of you know way to commercialize it or monetize it or even like do it again it was pure it was just pure expression of of something that you wanted to do like you wanted to do comedy here's an hour-long show and honestly i think that there's there is that was such a privilege to like come up or like become a comedian in that way because I mean you could experiment and like you know mess up and do bad like do like fully horror like bad shows like one year you just do a terrible show but you were just constantly generating material and and learning who you were as a performer so it was um it was awesome and then it just you know it really um prepared me well for like going to Edinburgh and going to Melbourne and stuff but um but yeah, some of those shows, some of those jokes, I literally, there was one in, uh, joke in Horndog that was a joke that I wrote when I was 18 and I found it in an old, in an old um, Google doc somewhere. And, and, and it was a joke that I, I never could find a punchline to. And then I was like, oh, I don't actually have to find a punchline to that joke. And then it's become one of my favorite jokes to do um, as an adult. It's a good how, one. How, how tough was it for you to, to adapt your style once you did start going to Edinburgh because mm-hmm. it's such a much more established, crazier place yeah. where you're competing with hundreds of shows for time mm-hmm. and attention. And like you said, even even doing the show Horndog where you won the top honors, you're still self-producing. Mm-hmm. You're still kind of fighting with yeah. hundreds of other artists for attention. 
Well, I I think I'm just super, basically I'm super lucky. I mean, I am a lucky person who had the right show at the right time, managed to, because, you know, I mean, it's so wonderful, like so awesome to have won an award for that. But, let, you know, there were so many other shows that year um, that should could have and should have won that award. And, and you mm. know, it just happens to be that, you know, those certain people in that certain room liked your show and, um and so it and honestly it's it's almost like the honestly the luck of the draw and like <laughs> it's quite doing myself down in terms of like I, I certainly tried tried a little bit hard to make a show good enough to sort of be in the running for that but but really it is honestly like um there's no amount of you know good pr or or there's no amount of like competing with others or like or trying to make your show the best better than other things i think the best thing I think honestly that, um, you know, doing shows since I was young taught me is just, you just have to make the best show that you can. It's, I guess it's so where you go do what you, the best show that you can with what you have and who you are. And hopefully eventually people will find it and enjoy it. And that's the benefit of the fringe is that it is a space for those things to happen and those shows to kind of, you know, happen. I mean, it happened that to what happened to fly the Concords is that, you know, they were doing a show in like a cave, and um and it was really like a lot of word of mouth and and you know that's the power of the fringe is that so much of it is word of mouth and people just enjoying your show and and liking it and it's a very um uh a natural organic thing I think sometimes so um but again I'm just so lucky that I had I had experience of doing our shows and um and that I had good people making my show and yeah, I was super lucky. Did you, did you already have the idea or you and Alice already have the idea for starstruck at that point? Or was that something where once you got all the plaudits for horn dog, you're like, Oh, now I have this attention. I can leverage that to start pitching shows. Well, it's, well, I, I actually wrote the pilot for Starstruck when I was in Melbourne, the Melbourne Comedy Festival in 2018. Okay, so you did. The, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, and yeah, so I wrote that pilot and then um, filmed that pilot, filmed the pilot at the end of, at the end of 2018, I think. Yes, yes, I did. I'm pretty sure I did. Yeah, so I, so I wrote the pilot. Um, I wrote the pilot in, in, in Melbourne. <laughs> I mean, we did have a yeah. year. We did have a like, kind yeah. of a lost year. So <laughs> I know. I'm just trying to figure to, out my to remember timeline. what year things happened. I know. I know. God. Um. It's. 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 It, yes, I did. No, this is exactly what happened. So in 2018 in Melbourne, I wrote the pilot, mm-hmm. and then um went to Edinburgh, did, got there. That helps get um uh, you know went from script just being commissioned as a script to actually making a pilot that was like non broadcast, and so we made that, and then um. From there, it just it, it got. Uh, I brought on. Um, then Alice came on board, and I guess early 2019, and then we wrote. We started writing the series actually during Edinburgh of 2019 because she was up doing her own show at Edinburgh, and so we wrote a lot of it in the dungeon room of a, an Edinburgh office building, um, <laughs> and with no natural light, uh, is where we came up with most of the episodes. And um, uh yeah it was um but it definitely I, I think it certainly helped i think the horn dog was uh i mean not only in the kind of cynical way of like you know 
it, it helps with getting stuff made, but it also helped because I, I, to have a bit of success for a product that was purely like made by you, written by you with you in it is kind of like um, sort of an ind- good indication of what a person can achieve when they write a script and they want to make a television show. So it's kind of like a, um, yeah, it's very advantageous to be like, Hey, uh, here's a show with me in it, me writing for myself. And here's also another show that I wrote for myself, which I'm in. The characters <laughs> will be pretty similar. Uh, <laughs> well, and, you're not uh, a comedian yeah. in it. So at least there's not that. No. Well, I think it's, I think honestly, Jesse and soundtrack is like, I always describe as like the dark timeline. Uh, no, actually, the comedy timeline is is dark timeline. This is the the good timeline. Uh, <laughs> Rose, as if you know, if I moved to, to the UK and like, and I probably would have you know worked in a cinema and did nannying, and th- I really would have probably done all those things um, mm-hmm. had I not done comedy. So um, yeah, and sliding I, I know, doors. <laughs> right, I know, and I know you've been asked this before, at least once, if not a hundred times. Mm-hmm. But but how did you manage? to keep your sense of, of focus and balance when the pandemic threw everything for a loop? Oh, and I didn't. I like, honestly, like, you know, we're about to start shooting the series and then it all just like on the way to the read through, um, they were just like, um, yeah, it's not going to happen. Uh, we're going to do it later on in the year. And then the next day I was on a plane back to New Zealand. Alice left one day. She was like, come, come honestly fly back tomorrow. And I left all my stuff like I just left a, a untidy bedroom, like fled for five months um, where I went home and I went, I don't believe that we'll make it in October. I just don't believe that I'm going to have to retrain. I'm going to have to honestly, like really honestly let it go in my mind and went, I don't think we're going to make the show. And um, yeah, because we just didn't know what was going to happen in the future. And so we, we actually went back and we started writing, we wrote the second series and, uh, but, but weirdly, like we didn't, then we got back and made the first series and then we're like, we have to rewrite the entire second series. So there's actually like an entire lost second series, um, that we wrote during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and it's like literally an alternate series. Uh, I can't believe we did that. <laughs> it was just, an insane we've written like three series worth and we just it was it was just crazy but um but no it was a great focus to have to write the second series while we were um, in the in the lockdown but um pretty hard still as well I think everyone found it difficult to do anything then. I was I was joking with you at the beginning of our conversation here about civilians because you know it's it's mentioned in the in the first series but for anyone, oh for anyone in the comedy business, it's a term that gets thrown al- around a lot. At least, yeah. at least in, in America. The States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always people who aren't so in comedy like, are oh. civilians. So. Do you think it's said ironically, or is it said like genuinely, like you know, because that's like it's an aspect of stand up, and maybe it's an as- aspect of co- co- comedians and stand up that might be more prevalent in the U.S., where it's you know it's it's feeling like you're the you're the shit you're the fucking shit man like you know like it's like and, and that style of comedy is very i'd say like i don't know maybe it's male and it's maybe kind of potentially more leans more to an american style but it's that kind of like 
I'm here, I'm on stage, I got the mic, you're going to listen to what I've got to say. That is the polar opposite of me. I look like I'm under duress most of the time I'm doing stand-up. I'm like not making eye contact and talking very fast. I'm apologizing for being on stage, which is also just as annoying possibly. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think I'm, I think comedians are the scum of the earth and um, uh, we shouldn't be proud of being comedians. We should be embarrassed of being comedians. There should be, it should just be pure embarrassment. There's nothing good about it. We're the lowest of the low. Um, we are merely jesters and um, we'll be the first to um, uh, be killed by the king. Well, that, so, yeah. in that case, civilians is a compliment because they're, yeah. they're civilized and we're, we're the barbarians. Salt of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The salt of the earth, civilians. I, I'd seen comparisons to, to Notting Hill and I remember seeing Notting Hill, but, and I get why the, the comparisons are made, but it's, it's such a different universe because of technology and social media. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what what you what do you think what are you what are you hoping to to convey in terms of our relationship with fame today? Well, I think yeah, it's interesting. I think it's it's, it's Star Trek is obviously in a far different era than than a film like Notting Hill, but um, I think we also made the um, active decision to like avoid a lot of the trappings of social media as well, particularly in as, as story devices as now na- and sort of as narrative kind of things and, and things that exist in the world. I mean, like I, you know, big lesson. And I didn't know, I didn't, I hadn't watched it before. Um, you know, we wrote Starstruck, but when I watched Watchmen, which is just the most incredible thing. And like the decision they've just made of going, Oh, there's no social media. There's no phones. There's no phones in this universe. Mm. And, and, and it, and it helps them so much with that story. And, and I think to a certain extent, you know, that's kind of what we built into not this, that, that like, there's no, there's no such thing as phones or, or, you know, um, uh, technology or social, social media, but the show is like, it's focused on like the love story. And I think um, that's what I find interesting about the, sh- the show. And I think a lot of um, celebrity, the nature of celebrity has changed since, since some time, like, like, like a time like the nineties where not only are celebrities like far more accessible, um, but people, I think there's so many more of them that people like care a little bit less or they can k- genuinely keep a much lower profile or, um, you know, it's not like Beatle mania when you see a celebrity necessarily. And I think there's a difference between a big difference between the UK and, and the, um, the U S in that regard, because I think a lot of celebrities would get mobbed in the U S in certain places where they wouldn't in the UK. So, um, to me, it still feels realistic. I think the nature of Tom's celebrity and, and starstruck, but, um, but I, I, yeah, I think, um, we avoided the trappings of like, you know, going to stalk someone out on, of course, Jesse stalked out his Instagram, of course, but I don't want to see that. I don't care. Like, I, you know, I, I hate, I honestly genuinely hate phone screens. I hate phone screens on, on, uh, on television and in films. I think it's the worst. And I think, only used sparingly is when they should be used um because i'm i've got a particular hate of like bad badly done like comped screens and like um fake like search you know engines uh ever since i watched twilight um when kristen stewart's character 
when Bella like Googles vampires, but she doesn't Google vampires. She bings vampires, which is the most amazing thing. And like, it's this whole montage of her, like literally like, and discovering the internet through Bing and what <laughs> vampires are through Bing. And you're just like, Oh my God, this is the worst, this is the worst thing. Just get her a book. Just get her a book to read about vampires for God's sake. <laughs> get her the book Twilight. Yeah, exactly. Out of help around. <laughs> well, Rose, uh, thank you for upholding some some solid standards in screenwriting and acting, <laughs> and uh, and thank you for being accessible as a as oh. a as a burgeoning celebrity of your of your own self. I, pr- oh I really God. appreciate it. Oh, it's so lovely to see you, and thank you so much. And thanks for reminding me of Montreal. It's made me very happy. And um, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna go think about Schwartz's Deli's good. Um, uh, brisket yes all right stay safe out there in, in, in the u.s man thanks see, Rose. see you later bye this episode of the comics comic presents last things first was produced by alex brazell at showbiz studios the music by camille harris and shockwave local by giggle chick please check out my website thecomicscomic.com more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.